Our good God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your abundant provision in our lives and care for us. We thank you especially for sending your son, that he died and was raised to life on our behalf for our sins, that we might walk in freedom. Lord, as we give back our tithes and offerings to you, we acknowledge that every good gift comes from your hand. We acknowledge that our trust is wholly in you that we are completely dependent on you for even our breath. And Lord, we thank you for how you care for us, knowing the very hairs on our head. Make our hearts gladly trust you and cause us to live our lives as the ultimate gift and offering to you, a life pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 24. And verse 36 for the scripture reading this morning, Luke 24, 36. This is God's word. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power. From on high. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray together. Lord, would You take Your Word and impart it to us? Open our eyes. Reveal Your Word to us, just as we see You did for the disciples here. Open our eyes. Cause us to see. Give us understanding. Convict us, Lord, where we need conviction. Bring to life where there's death. Strengthen where there is weakness. And cause us to love You and trust You more because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This year during Holy Week, we've looked at some different passages in Scripture focusing on the Lord's call for us to remain alert. On Palm Sunday, we looked at the the, the notion that we are to be alert in how we live our lives, ready to live in a way that pleases God to His glory in all that we do that we're to remain alert to the fact that he may return at any time, and that we are to stay on watch against the prowling enemy who is going around seeking whom he may devour. On Monday, Thursday, we saw how we are to be alert to not being consumed by the cares of this world, that we are to remain watchful in prayer as we moment by moment run to our Savior from whom our help comes. On Friday, we read together the crucifixion account which should always hone our awareness of the sufficiency of Christ's death death on our behalf, having borne our judgment on the cross. And then today, 
we will see the Good Shepherd's call to the mission of His people to be witnesses of the good news of His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. There are three accounts in this chapter that Luke records. The first is of the women going to the tomb, discovering it's empty. Later, Peter went as well and saw it on their word. Uh, The road to Emmaus, the two disciples who went uh, walking along, very discouraged. Jesus appeared to them and spoke to them and ate with them. And then this account is the third from that first Easter morning in which Jesus came to the disciples and a larger group that was with them, many of the disciples. And when we say the disciples, we often think of just the 12. Uh, this is the, 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 the 10 or 11 at this point. We're not sure if Peter was here the way the, the phrases worked. But 10 or 11, Judas was no longer there, and as well as a, a much larger group of the followers of Jesus, the disciples of him. All of these episodes in this chapter of Luke have some similarity. Uh, We notice if we were to take time to read through all of them, there are uh, uh, some things that are the same. The shock, uh, understandably so, of seeing Jesus alive. The doubt that accompanied such a sight. We see Jesus give instruction and encouragement, and we see rejoicing. All three episodes, though, build on each other into this kind of increasing awareness, an increasing surety that Jesus is indeed alive. And as the two from the Emmaus Road were recounting their experience, they said just in a few verses earlier, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. It was as they were saying these things that our text begins in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them or stood among them. It's just like on the road to Emmaus. They didn't see Jesus walk up to him. He just appeared. Here is the same way, and we can understand the alarm, why they thought this was a vision or a dream or a ghost or something that they were seeing. I came across this comment by Dale Ralph Davis, and I really appreciated it. Listen to this. He says, it scared the liver out of him. (laughs) An unflappable rationalist might look at this and ask why the disciples were so shaken when they had already known that Jesus had risen. Well... They had less than a day to integrate all these matters. Nor had they heard anyone knock. He was just there. Knee-jerk reaction chalks it up to being a spirit or a ghost. Not that the disciples had a carefully worked out system of ghostology. It was simply their immediate terrified reaction. What we see here is that Jesus, having been raised from the dead, now has a body that is not like our body. It's what Paul calls a spiritual body. And while I'll say that we all long to understand this, that we all long to look into this further, that we all long to understand this completely, much of this has to remain in the realm of the mysterious. But Paul does say a few things about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The natural body of Jesus had been raised in power and is now a spiritual body with what we might call some unique properties by which he was able to appear and disappear before the disciples in both of these accounts in Luke. Yet we see that the resurrected body of Jesus, this spiritual body, still possessed the physical uh, attributes that he showed to them. 
the scars that he let them see and touch, that he ate food with them. It was still a body with physical characteristics, but a spiritual body, what we might call greatly enhanced. And as Jesus appears to them, his first words were, peace to you, which if you have any understanding of ancient Near East, you would see this as a normal greeting. This is how they greet one another even in the, the modern Middle East. They Peace, shalom, or salam, depending on the language that you speak. And so we might gloss over this, but consider the significance of the one who was speaking in the context into which he was speaking. Here was the Prince of Peace saying to his disciples, peace to you. Here was the one who at his birth had been heralded by angels as the one who would bring peace on earth And he just had accomplished that, now speaking to his disciples, peace to you. And the disciples, having been forgiven of their sins through his death, as have we, they are now comforted in this peace that Jesus is no longer dead, just as we are comforted. Their future hope is portrayed before their eyes. This is what they await in the resurrection of their bodies, as is our hope as well. So when Jesus declares peace to you, It is much more than a simple greeting. And then verse 37, we see the disciples are frightened. We understand this, that even though they were just talking about His resurrection, just the shock of seeing Jesus appear, the reality of the resurrection for them was something that would startle them. And so Jesus questions them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. The truth is something that can be either comforting or discomforting, depending on which side we land on. If you're correct, the truth is a comfort to you. If you're incorrect, the truth can madden or frustrate you, depending on if you're correctable or not. Many of us have seen the the descent from reason in past decades, wherein today truth is called relative. Rather than saying that people have varying beliefs about a subject, people now have their own truth. In the past, we could agree to disagree, maybe on beliefs with our secular friends, but today, because everyone possesses their own truth, we are now more divided than ever. And I think part of this goes back to a misunderstanding or a misconception of what truth is. Truth is simply that which is. It is reality. And if truth is going to mean anything at all, and it does, it must by nature be intolerant of error. I say this often, but it bears repeating. We get this when it comes to building construction. We get this when it comes to flying airplanes. And we get this when it comes to our finances. That if there is an error, we want it fixed. Truth matters. We need to know the truth. Know that it is truly the truth. And Jesus is sympathetic to this here with his disciples. He offers for them to see and to touch. You can imagine these hesitant disciples reaching out and feeling the scars, the indentions of the skin, the way the skin changes with a wound when it heals, the bones, the ligaments, the muscles, everything, that this was real bone and flesh, that Jesus was standing before them, the one who they had seen, had, had witnessed his death. They were now witnessing, witnessing him standing alive before them. They were now eyewitnesses of the truth. And then in verse 41, Luke comments, and yet they still disbelieved. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, 
we get this, right? I mean, we've all had these experiences. I won't speak of any particular sporting team, but there was a recent national, national championship uh, in which, but you can imagine, right? Uh, you know, your, your team's down, you know, it seems all hopeless. And then at the last minute, you know, your team comes back and, and wins the national championship. And you stand there with your friends looking and going, I can't believe it. Or you have a harrowing experience in traffic where, you know, your life flashes before your eyes and you think, I you know, can't believe what just happened. Or nine months of pregnancy and 30 hours of labor and you're holding this little squishy, slimy, screaming creature in your arm saying, I can't believe it. And the incredible love that you feel. This is what Luke is describing when he says they had joy and they were marveling yet in disbelief. They just cannot believe what they are seeing. To which Jesus, if touching the scars weren't enough, now asks for a bite to eat. He did the same thing with the two on the road to Emmaus. It says they stopped and broke bread together. So now they witness with this larger group him eating and uh, drinking with them that he is no ghost. He is really alive. And then in verse 44, Jesus begins to sum up his ministry. Sum it up in a way that will lay the foundation for the mission that he is about to give them. He says in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Two things he's reminding them of here. First, that his life and ministry had all been prophesied, had all been spoken of in the Old Testament. Summarized here is the law of Moses, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, and the Psalms representing all the wisdom literature. That all along the way from the garden... From uh, the very beginning, there had been one who was spoken of who would come and deliver God's people. The whole of every passage pointing forward to its fulfillment in this coming Redeemer. That there was a kingdom that was coming whose king would reign forever and ever. This is what the Old Testament was pointing toward. And he takes them backward just like he did with them on the road to Emmaus. The second thing Jesus is saying is that the mission is not new. It flows out of God's eternal and covenantal plan in the unfolding of the kingdom. There are not two missions of God. There are not two plans of God. There's not one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament or whatever way. There is a single unified plan from before the foundation of the world of God saving a people for himself, beginning with one man and one family, becoming one nation, the people of Israel, to now a people made up of all nations, a kingdom of priests unto our God. And just like with the two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus here, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It was all pointing to him. And then in verse 45, it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Don't miss the significance of this. I pointed this out last week that in Luke 18, as Jesus was teaching, this wasn't true of all of his teaching, but in this particular context, Luke points out, they did not understand Luke 18, 34, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. And what he's saying now is that that which was being hidden, not only for them, but for ages past it had remained hidden, Jesus was now revealing the glorious mystery of God's sovereign grace for all nations. A number of places that we could see in the New Testament this explained or expounded, two of them I'll mention, Ephesians 3, 8 and 9, where Paul says, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Colossians 1.25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In God's perfect wisdom, he had spoken of in the Old Testament, but yet kept hidden in ways this incredible mystery of his unfolding grace to do much more than save a person, a family, or even a nation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all who believe might have eternal life. And so as he opened their minds to the great mysteries being revealed, he begins with, thus it is written. Now we understand the importance of Jesus showing his wounds to the disciples, allowing them to feel the scars, to know that he was actually alive, had been raised from the dead. We get how essential that it was that he ate in front of them, that they might know this was not a ghost or a spirit, but it was truly him in in a form that they could see and feel and touch. The truth is necessary for us to know. And so Jesus, having revealed himself to them, now helps us who would live millennia later. Thus it is written. Scripture had foretold, he said, of the coming Redeemer, that he should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And we see this. We see it in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. In passages like Genesis 3.15, Genesis 49.10, Deuteronomy 18.15, and the Exodus experience, particularly the Passover and the Paschal Lamb. It was there in the Messianic Psalms like Psalm 22, Psalm 8, Psalm 118. It was there in the prophets that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. That he would be a descendant of David, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Though the people couldn't understand how it would all unfold or all fit together, Jesus points back to the Old Testament that they might know there and now in the New Testament, we can see and know the truth. For thus it is written. You and I have not had the privilege of seeing the scars of Jesus, feeling them. We haven't seen him eat fish. But those who did served as eyewitnesses as they went out to tell the world, and some were even used to pen the New Testament Scripture, that we might know the truth, for thus it is written. The message wasn't simply that that Jesus would, would suffer and die and be raised to life, but what would be accomplished through this. Verse 47 tells us it was for repentance and the forgiveness of sins that would be granted by God's grace that then must be proclaimed beginning in Jerusalem and then going to all nations. Another version of the Great Commission, the more, uh, uh, the more understand or recognizable one, uh, is Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But this is, this is the same commandment given, that he's sending them out. The emphasis is on proclamation of the gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, the good news for all nations. The benefit for us of Christ's death and resurrection is that we have been forgiven of our sins that we were helpless and hopeless, unable to save ourselves, unable to remove the stain of sin, unable to satisfy the just judgment and wrath of God. Something had to be done on our behalf. And this was God's plan from before the heavens and the earth were created, a plan to redeem a people for himself out of love and for his own glory. Our triune God is a saving God. And this is good news for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue.
He then instructs his disciples that he is going to send them out as eyewitnesses, that what they have seen and heard, they must begin to tell others beginning in Jerusalem. But he calls on them to wait, wait for the promised Holy Spirit, who would be uh, the one to clothe them with power from on high. And, and this, is, is, this is where Luke's gospel comes to a close here. But we know that Luke also penned Acts. And where does Acts open up after the ascension but moves right into Pentecost, that coming of the Holy Spirit who anointed them with power on high. As believers, we too are called to be witnesses by the Good Shepherd to what we have seen and heard. I say Good Shepherd because we see the Good Shepherd on display here in the care for His disciples. He sought to calm them when they were frightened. He spoke the truth to them to strengthen their trust in Him. He invited them to see and feel the scars that they might know with certainty that He was alive. He put on display for them that He is truly the Good Shepherd. But how are we to be witnesses when we weren't there? We are to be witnesses to the resurrected Christ through faith according to the Scriptures. Thus it is written. In the same way that the Pentateuch and the prophets and the wisdom literature all spoke about the coming Messiah, we look to both the Old and New Testaments in the Scripture to see the Messiah who has come. And we speak of Him. Yet our witness is not just about what happened back then. It must include that. That is the good news, right? That Jesus Christ came and died to save sinners. But we also testify to what Christ has done in our lives now. That He is our hope, our comfort, our strength in this life, our restoration, our healing, and our help in the face of evil. That He is our victory and our growth in the grace that is a result of His sanctifying power in our lives. We ought to speak about Christ with the same comfort and joy that we speak about our children, our job, or our hobbies. I'm not saying that we trivialize the gospel. I'm not talking about dumbing it down or or making light of its seriousness. What I'm saying is that our testimony is not a canned presentation. It's not a sales pitch where the other person knows what's coming. We shouldn't treat people like projects. Instead, let us talk of the hope that we have in as sincere a manner as we talk about the joys of our grandchildren. Let's talk about the strength that we have in Christ with the same conviction that a person talks about a new diet, a new supplement, or a new workout program. Let's share the comfort and contentment we have in the gospel of Jesus in the same way a person tells you of their favorite new show that they can't wait to watch the next episode of. I'm talking here not that the gospel compares to any of these things. I'm not trivializing or likening it to any of these things. I'm talking about the sincerity and conviction of our own hearts. How do we speak of the hope that is within us? Do we truly believe and has it changed us? If so, then it's not about winning an argument. Have we really come out of the the kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light? Then it ought to shine like light, not like a sales pitch. If Jesus said they will know us by our love, then what is the aroma that you leave in a room? Jesus is king. He has been raised from the dead. He is the all-powerful, sovereign one who created all things by the word of his power and holds all things together. He doesn't need marketers, legal experts, advertisers, or brand influencers. He calls us to be witnesses, witnesses of the gospel and its powerful transformation in our lives. If you've never come to terms with the gospel, then hear me call you today to taste and to see that the Lord is good. 
That we have all sinned is not one that I would ever hear much argument on. Everyone knows this. We live in a world marked by wrongness. Everything is not right. We're a part of the problem. Every one of us has contributed to it. We've all done things that are wrong. No one is righteous. Not one. The Father lovingly sent His Son to take on human flesh and to die for the forgiveness of those sins, that we might be forgiven. So just as we read in this account of the need for repentance and forgiveness of sins, so we must repent and seek forgiveness. That is, turn from our sin to Christ. And it's all by faith that we come to Him confessing with our mouth, believing in our heart that Jesus died and was raised. What Christ can and will do for you is not simply remove your guilt and grant you heaven when you die. As essential and wonderful as that is, He will transform your life now. We testify to this. Not a life of ease, not a life void of suffering and pain, but a life free from condemnation because of what the gospel says. A life free from enslavement to anger and bitterness and lust and malice because of what the gospel has done. A life of hope and joy because of what the gospel is. I'm not promising anything that the gospel isn't. So hear me clearly as I close with this. Because Jesus died and has been raised to life, here is what I know with certainty. That if you have put your faith in Jesus, then thus it is written. Your sins are forgiven. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, Acts 13.38. You have been made righteous. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. There is no condemnation for you. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been saved that you might live rightly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 2.24, you have peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, And lastly, you are held securely by Him because Jesus died and was raised to life again. My friends, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You Jesus is alive. Sin has no weight, no bearing, no condemnation on us any longer. We bear, we we, we, we don't have to carry it at all. When Jesus declared, it is finished, it was done. And we celebrate and we marvel. Sometimes in unbelief like the disciples, we just can't believe it. But we thank you, Lord, that our sins are forgiven. But Lord, not just that our sins are forgiven and not just that you will accept us into heaven with you when we die. 
But Lord, thank you that you are doing a work in us here and now, that you are comforting us in our afflictions, that you are strengthening us to live rightly in a manner pleasing to you, that you are giving us the words that we need to say to speak of the hope within us, to be a witness to others, that you are giving us merciful hearts to show compassion on those who are hurting. Lord, that you are giving us continual grace, grace upon grace in our everyday need for you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the good news that Jesus has saved us. Lord, would you make our hearts glad, not just in this moment and today, but as we walk into our lives this week, that we might be a fragrant aroma of this good news. We pray this in the name of our wonderful and risen Savior, Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing the resurrection.